online church, what I was just saying, I was just saying you guys are lovely, and we just love you, and we're just glad you could join us today. Uh, go ahead and turn your copy of God's Word this morning to Romans chapter 3. We're in a series called Win in Rome. The next 10 weeks, we're just journeying through the book of Romans and looking at that. Uh, you know, I, I had an issue uh, whenever I lost a, a lot of weight. I had an issue where uh, my muscles also got really weak. And so something that happened one day, uh, I was playing basketball, and I literally could not, could not move my knee backwards anymore. It just happened suddenly. I'm like, oh, what is this? It was the most painful thing. And come to find out, I had uh, chronic patellar tendonitis, and it was very serious. And so over a couple years, my wife's kind of, you know, she's in the medical field, and she doesn't want me to pay for any type of uh, health care. She's like, oh, it'll be fine. Just do some PT. We have some PTs here, athletic trainers that help me with some stuff. And nothing was working. And so then I went to an orthopedic uh, surgeon, and, and, uh, and he looked at it, and he wanted me to get an MRI done. Now, I went, and if you never had an MRI done, I just, it's a really creepy experience, right? Anybody ever had an MRI done? It's like so creepy. And so I went and got it done. It was not pleasant at all. And when I got done, here's, uh, here's what happened. They showed me a picture of what the problem was. And when they gave me that picture, guess what happened? I was instantly cured. Now, you're laughing because that's not what an MRI is supposed to do for you, is it? An MRI isn't meant to cure the problem. What an MRI does, it shows you how serious or what exactly the problem is. And as we continue looking at uh, this letter to the church at Rome, I want you to understand that Paul was using the same imagery for what was called the law to the Jews and the Gentiles in the letter to the church at Rome. As we established last week, this letter is probably the most important letter in the whole New Testament because it's almost like a miniature Bible. If you're trying to understand Christianity, read Romans. Because it explains uh, to you about salvation and what God has done and how we were made right with Christ. And then there's so much what we're going to get into in this series, which is just phenomenal. But every reformation that has happened in the church has been because that person had an experience with God as they read the letter to the church at Rome. Like even Martin Luther, we have Protestant Christian churches today, and we exist today because, as we said last week, Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the Catholic diocese to their door saying that we are saved by grace through faith alone so no one can boast. And then you look at Calvin and Augustine and Wesley and all the church fathers from even all the different denominations. It was the letter to the church at Rome. And what you must understand about this letter, which is very unique, this is near the end of Paul's life. He's now been journeying for 20 years. He's on his third missionary journey, and he really wanted to go to the church at Rome. His goal in the first missionary journey was to make it to Rome, and he never did. The second missionary journey was to make it to Rome, and he never did. And finally, by the third journey, I think that he realized, I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to make it there or not. Every plan I've made has been interrupted. And so he writes this letter to them. He was in the city of Corinth. He was there for about three months, and he writes this extensive letter to them. And what you have to really take in with Romans, which makes it beautiful, is this is Paul near the end of the journey, not Paul at the beginning of the journey. If you want to kind of read, like Galatians and Romans kind of go hand in hand, if you want to go back and study, read Galatians first. That was one of his first letters, either that or 1 Thessalonians. Scholars aren't exactly sure, but Galatians he kind of shares some of the same sentiments and thoughts, but it's nowhere explained as in-depth 
as it is in Romans. And he breaks down, again, justification by faith. But what he starts with, remember last week in chapters 1 and 2? Paul starts with the problem of depravity, that we're all born into sin, we're all born sinners, we're not born good people, we're not born morally neutral people, that we're not, you know, good people getting better. We're people whose hearts are desperately wicked because of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, the whole human race was now born into sin. And Paul shows what the, 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 the depth of depravity looked like, remember? The dilemma that we faced. And then in chapter 2, what he does before he leads into chapter 3, he starts speaking more to his Jewish brothers and sisters. He starts speaking to them about their condition because the Jews believed because they were born Jews, they were fine. It's these Gentiles need to be getting right. Like the whole idea of repentance was foreign to them. When Peter was preaching this, when John the Baptist was preaching this, it was foreign because like, I don't know, Gentiles, they repent and get baptized to become part of our, you know, culture. It's not that, we don't do that. But in, in Romans 2 and then in Romans 3, before we jump into 319 today, Paul begins to quote the Old Testament, which was their Torah to them, about no one is good, no, not one, that all are unrighteous. This is what we all are like. And he's showing them that Jews and Gentiles both are lost in depravity. And he shows them the problem. But what you're going to see in Romans 3.19 today is, is that mankind, even though I think we all know that, we're trying to find a cure for this depravity in all the wrong ways. And the Jews, the way they tried to cure this not being made right with God is through the law that was given to them. And you'll see this word law used a whole lot in Romans. And there's two ways this used. It's, it's important. The first is when he says the law, Right? He's speaking in today specifically to the Jews in the Old Testament. So you know the boring books in the Bible, like the Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, like, you know, don't, don't uh, you know, bull a, a baby goat in its mother's milk? Like, you're like, yeah, I'm kind of like, yeah, that's, I'm not going to do that. That's gross. But all these things that don't make sense, that was the law for them. And it was first of all given to the Jews when they left Egypt because they had no way to govern themselves. 613 laws were given because they, didn't, they, were, they were slaves in Egypt. And he gave them these laws to make sure that they were morally, civilly, uh, judicially, even with the styles of eating, that they would become the most powerful nation, that through the Jews, the seed of Messiah would come through so one day we could be saved. But the other purpose of the law that, that was used back in that day and time for the, for the Jews was this, is that this is how you're made right with God, that you can kind of work to be made right with God. So, but Paul's now got to deconstruct everything they've ever learned. And him being a Jew, and he was one of the main teachers of the law, he breaks it down for him. So don't you look at Romans 3.19. He's just led into them with we're all sinners, like Jews like, even says that no one is righteous. He keeps quoting the Old Testament. And then he says this, obviously, like, hey, it's clearly, the law applies to those whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses. And watch this. What's the purpose of the law? To show that the entire world is, is guilty before God. This is very important. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. They're like, what? This is what we've learned our whole life, Paul. 
The Jews are like, no, 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 this is what we've been taught. He says this, the law simply shows us how sinful we really are. And then he goes into the good news. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. He's speaking to the Jews. Like, hey, remember that? There's promises there. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. He keeps saying everyone because the Jews just weren't convinced, some of them right, that, that they were sinners. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet, God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. And he says, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. For God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be made right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. And verse 27 is key today. Can we boast then? That we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not obeying the law. He wants them to understand that they can never be made right with obeying the law. What's the purpose of the law? That's what he wanted to show them. Because their purpose thought, well, if I can obey these things, you know what? I'll be okay with God. And even the Greeks or the Gentiles had this moral law. You know how people who are agnostic or atheist are kind of like, well, I'm a good person. I mean, I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer, you know? I mean, but I'm, I'm not perfect. And we make up our own laws, even, even if they weren't Jews, they were making up their own standards. And Paul says the Jewish law, the ten, even the Ten Commandments shows us you're not made right with God by obeying those. Non-believers aren't made right with God by obeying those. Remember I told you last week that the, one of the, the things that hurt Christianity, we lost a whole generation because you were probably taught by grandma and grandpa that to be a Christian, you have to do this. Good Christians do these things. And I thought, well, I can never be, never be a good Christian. Listen, God didn't send Jesus to make bad people better and make bad hearts better, he sent Jesus to give us a new heart and make us new. Meaning that we had to die with Jesus on that death and be resurrected again by believing in faith. And so what's the purpose of the law? If you have your notes today, write this down, because it's this, the law is an MRI that gives mankind a diagnosis of the disease of sin. The law is an MRI. It's God showing us how bad we really are. And here's what the problem really is. It's not a solution. It's merely an MRI. And when Jesus came, he even reiterated this. So he, he steps in to the Jewish culture, and in that Jewish culture, they were like, well, um, I've not committed adultery with any woman, so I'm pure. 
I've obeyed all the laws and commands. And the Pharisees were like, outwardly, they looked the part. They tithed. If a woman come walking on the street, they would put their head down because they didn't want to, you know, that want to, you know, to commit adultery or look bad. That they were doing everything outwardly correctly. But Jesus said this, and this is key. He came to let them know they could never achieve the standard of righteousness. In a, in a kind of way, he's like, hey, you think you're doing good? They're like, yeah, I'm doing great. Okay, okay, that's cool. So, so you haven't committed adultery? <laughs> no, Jesus, we're holy. Okay, so then Jesus says, okay, Sermon on the Mount. He says, okay, you haven't committed adultery? Here's how God views it. If you've even ever thought lustfully about a woman, you've now committed adultery. He took the law standard and then raised it so high that no one could ever meet it. So they could understand that the law was simply an MRI to show them the disease they had, which is sin. And for us, I want you to understand that because it's like, the example I've given before is it's like me trying to dunk a 10-foot basketball goal. Yo, I ain't never going to do it. White men can't jump. <laughs> and it's never going to happen. But it's not only that. If I thought, man, if I could just do that, then I would impress people and people would, I'd get approval. Imagine then somebody says, okay, cool, well, keep trying, keep working at it, and then you come back and they raise it to 30 feet. Now, no one can ever do it. It's not, there's no way possible. That's what it's like to, treat, to try to be made right with God through works. And, and you and I today aren't like, you know, obeying the Jewish law. I'm pretty sure you're not like, you know, going through all 613 commands and making sure you're doing that. But the disease in Christianity in America today is we have a works-based righteousness that's been ingrained in us. That is Jesus plus being a pretty good person is going to get you into heaven. And the problem is this. If we miss this, then we will use good works as the cure for the disease of sin. If you miss the purpose of the law, then what you're going to do is you're going to try to say, yeah, yeah, I know I'm not good enough. I know I'm a sinner, but I'm going to try to use good works to make sure that I'm good enough for God. And the standard is your works will never, that's why I say your works are as filthy rags. I'm not going to tell you what the real translation of that is because it's pretty strong. And I can't use that in church for some of you because you, you know, you have to explain that over lunch to your teenager. As filth. God looks at our works-based righteousness, and he calls it filthy, disgusting rags that you would never touch with your hands. But that's what we do. I mean, think about it. Religion is this, and Christianity is not religion. Religion is man reaching up to God. That's what it is. Every other religion in the world is I can appease God through these list of rules that this book gives me. If you're, if you're Muslim, that's what you do. The Quran says pray at this time, you do it at this time, and then hopefully you're going to balance the scales out with your good works and, and Allah is going to accept you into heaven. If you're Buddhist and you say, hey, you know what, if I can obey the four noble laws, I can go through that, then maybe one day I can reach nirvana if I'm good enough. Hinduism, you're hoping that you get reincarnated not as a roach, right? If you're just good enough and keep working at it. And that's man reaching up to God. And for, before Christ, that's what mankind did. They created ways to try to reach up to God, to appease God, to make God happy. Or if you were Greek or a Jew, a Gentile, you were trying to appease the gods. 
But here's what Christianity is, and this is what Paul is trying to get across. Christianity is not man reaching up, it's God reaching down. It's God reaching down to us, amen? That we don't have to reach up anymore. That it's him saying, you know what, stop showing me your resume and either like talking about how good you are or how bad you are. Following Jesus is showing God Jesus' resume, not yours. And that's the only way that you're accepted. But what we do is, is we kind of tie good works into it. It's mixing righteousness and works. Now, trust me, if you really know Jesus, good works will flow from you because he changes your heart, right? But those works are not to get you accepted. It's not to get you a bigger mansion in heaven. It's not so you can stand before God. Listen, guys, when I stand before God, I can use none of this I'm doing before him. I cannot stand before him and say, hey, God, you know, thank you, man. I'm excited for the mansion you're going to give me. He said you prepared a place for me. But, and I'm sure it's great because I preached the gospel. I was faithful. You know, all of this that I'm doing is only because he's given me a gift and given me grace. It's all because of him, right? But many of us will want to stand before God and say, yeah, yeah, I believed. And then he said, why should I let you in? Well, you know that time they'd had that, that, that lady that's, you know, about the pregnancy help center? I, I gave a smooth five to her. I gave $5. Right? Yeah, hey, you know that time that they need somebody to serve and I stepped up? It was even raining outside. But many of us personally, and let me, let me bring it to this level, we're, we're either condemning ourselves or celebrating ourselves for something we never should. This happened to me. I, I, you know, I, again, I went to school, went to seminary, and I still was living by workspace righteousness until 2010. I got introduced to Timothy Keller, Dr. Tim Keller, John Piper, and some guys from other tribes that I wasn't a part of, other denominations, that taught me the beauty of salvation, of being made completely right with God. I knew I was saved, right? But here's what I did. Recently, I've been playing Mario Deluxe on the Nintendo Switch with my son, reliving the Mario days, right? And just teaching him about, you know, the, the power-ups and the, the mushrooms, and you can get the fire power, right? The flower power, you, you can shoot the fireballs and, and all that. It's been so fun doing that. But that's, and as I looked at it the other day, I thought about that's kind of how I viewed Christianity. If I was really good that week, I believed it was like Mario eating a mushroom. And God could really use me because I was just so good that week. Like I was just, you know, and then if I really prayed and fasted and did good, then God gave me extra power, man. I was like Mario with flower power destroying the devil, right? Walking around, you know, I was getting it. But if I had a bad week, maybe I flicked somebody off in traffic. Of course, I would never do that, right? You know, I wouldn't do that. Then the Lord took power from me, and I had to be in timeout until I got a little better. And then I could, like, you know, be used by God. And then I did not understand that I was made completely right with God. Remember the illustration I've given before? And I know we have spiritual amnesia, the gift of that, so I'm going to remind you, is that you can never be more married to your spouse than you are today. You don't get certificates at 10 years and 20 years saying you're more married than you were the first day. Like you're in a whole, you may know them better. Intimately, you may uh, be able to appreciate each other better, but you'll never be more married. That's the same way with salvation. You are no, you are no more saved today than you were the first day that you gave your life to Jesus. 
You may know the Lord more intimately. You may love the scriptures more and love prayer more, but you're no more saved than you are today. God's not giving you power-ups based on how good you are or how bad you are. You were made completely right with God. And Paul wanted to show them that and wanted to show us that in Romans. And what he does is he gives three illustrations, three images that you can miss. And I read it in the New Living Translation, but I want to use the New King James to show you three big words that show you and illustrate deeply what it means to be made right with God. He gives them three pictures. The first is a big word called justification. And again, it solves the problem of our guilt before a judge. That's what that word, that Greek word meant, justification. And he says this in in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. You know what justified means? Justified, never done it. As a youth pastor, that's how I explained it to teens when I did. Come on, y'all. you got to laugh at my jokes. Y'all all tired from being outside in that nice weather yesterday. It's justified, never done it. But what it solves is this. You are guilty before the judge. He is the righteous and the holy judge. We are guilty before him. We have sinned. We have broken the law. We deserve, remember last week, the demand of depravity? We deserve to die. We deserve death hell and the grave, and you're standing there in front of this judge, and he justifies you. You know what justification is? It's it's the reason, the reason. Think about this. When I stood before a judge back in the day before I knew Jesus and had, you know, some drug charges, I was trying to justify myself before the judge. Well, you know, and I was just trying to explain myself, and he said, look, kid, you need to go get a lawyer. (laughs) I'm going to give you 30 days. Go find a lawyer and come back. I was trying my best to justify myself before the judge. In Christianity, you don't justify yourself before the judge. He freely justifies your stance and your position as being acquitted. You're justified through Christ. This means it's powerful that you're standing there guilty for it, that you know it, he knows it, the courtroom knows it, and then the judge says, all right, you're free. You're thinking, what in the world? You're free from the penalty of the sin that you've. Isn't that beautiful? Justify had never done it. The second picture he gives is redemption. And it solves the problem of our slavery to sin. And look at verse 24. He says, through the redemption. So you're being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. These words meant something to the first century Greeks and Jews and Romans. They understood this word redemption. It meant to buy back something. And so you've been freed. Not only are you acquitted, right? So whatever caused us to break God's holy law, that urge inside of us, whatever that thing was, and we're going to dive into this. I cannot wait to, you know, week eight and nine. We're going to jump into this, is that you have been freed from the power of sin. And here's why. Because he redeemed you from your master. He bought, see, you were under a slave. The slave was sin. And you went and you just went and lived sin and you broke God's holy law. And it says that he redeemed you. That word redeem means to buy back. It means that God went 
Instead, I've got the blood of Jesus as the price, and I'm going to buy this child back, and now you're under a new master, and it's Jesus. It is no longer sin, that you don't have to live under that power any longer. And I love that we're going to get into it in the future weeks, is that you'll get to learn this. You may still have the urge to sin, but you're no longer under that power anymore. And you've got to learn to declare that because you've been bought with, a, bought with a price. Redemption solves the problem of our slavery to sin. And then there's another word called propitiation, and it's huge. You're thinking, man, these are big words, but I want to explain this to you. It solves the problem of attempting to appease God. And it says in verse 25, So through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. See, now I I, I didn't understand that before growing up in the church. What does propitiation mean? It meant the substitute sacrifice, that God needed a sacrifice. Remember the Jews had to sacrifice a lamb, the Passover lamb, every year? We should be the ones that are sacrificed because we deserve it. Christ, that word propitiation, he's the substitute sacrifice who took our place. You can never appease God with your goodness. I just hope I'm good enough to please God. You'll never be. I just hope God's pleased with me. I had one person crying tell me that one time. I said, I said he's never going to be. Why? Because you can never please him because you're a sinner. Well, how do I please God. You're in Christ. If you're in Christ, he's already pleased because you're in Jesus, and Jesus was a substitute. Does that make sense? He was a substitute for you. And now you are pleasing in his sight because of faith in Christ. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The law is just an MRI. The Ten Commandments are great for values, and they are a great guide for Judeo-Christian ethics to help us to, to love people and be kind to people. But you can never be made right with God by doing that. It's only through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not through your good works. Now, now here are two things that should happen. The first is this. The free cure through Christ should cause us to crowd out all credit. All, as I said before, all credit. When you realize this and it sinks into your heart, you should then realize I can't take any credit for anything that I do. If you ever tell me good sermon, I don't, I, I don't give myself a pat on the back. It's only the grace of God and the Holy Spirit in me that I can even do this, right? Nothing of my own self. It's only the Lord, right? So it should crowd out all credit when we look at our works, and here's what I've realized about credit. If it, you're trying to, I know you're processing, so do I do that? You're thinking, how do I do that? Here's how we do it the most is when we criticize somebody else and their lifestyle. The moment you criticize someone else and say, how dare could they do that? How dare, I mean, you know, I would never, I'm so mature in the Lord. Huh. You're taking credit for your own goodness. It should cause you to crowd out all credit. And begin to look introspectively in yourself to realize all the gaps that you have. The moment you criticize others is the moment you you realize you are taking credit for things. When you're internally having those conversations and you're angry at them. We have to crowd out all credit, guys. And Paul says this, and I love it, in, in verse 27. And he says this here, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? 
No, because our acquittal is not, on, is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So number one, it should have us cry out all of the credit. And then number two, guys, it's always going to lead us back to this. It should cause us to celebrate, personally to celebrate that every moment, morning you wake up, you should pause and celebrate that you have been made right with God. And you had nothing, matter of fact, not only do you have nothing to do with it, you were guilty. You deserve to die. It, that's why we celebrate. Why do we sing these songs before preaching? That's what you do at church. No, we're just celebrating. What are we celebrating? How songs make us feel? No, as I said last week, that's not what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the fact that God shows us that we deserve to die through the law. That we are unholy, we're unrighteous, we're sinners, we're not good people getting better. Search the scriptures. We were condemned. We were slaves. And out of nothing we could offer, nothing we could do, the judge looks at us and says, I've got to send somebody to death row. And out of the side of the courtroom walks his son, who's perfect. His son says, I'll go to death row. Know what you, you know, knowing, everybody knows that you did it. The son knows you did it. And he goes there on your behalf so you can be free. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? Amen. I want us to pray this morning, and then we're going to sing in celebration. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. That we're guilty. And we can never be made right with you. However, you provided the very sacrifice for us, Lord. Thank you. God, I just pray that every person in here or watching today, every follower of Jesus would have a renewed appreciation and love and celebration for the gospel. I pray for that, Lord, that we would live here refreshed and renewed and encouraged that we are made completely right with you today, Lord. Not hanging our heads in shame because we didn't hit a certain standard this week. Not condemning ourselves, but celebrating you. And God, I pray for all of those who've never given their life to you, who've not made that decision in here, or maybe they walked away. I'm not sure if they were hurt by Christianity. I'm not sure what the story was, but I pray today would be a day of them re-solidifying their relationship with you. So if you're in here today, maybe you walked away from your faith or stopped engaging the Lord or whatever your story is, maybe you've never, never made the decision to follow Jesus. I want you right where you're sitting, whether it's the comfort of your couch at home, whether it's in here physically today, I want you to pray this prayer. Make this confession of faith with me today. Just by just praying this after me. Say, God, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for Jesus. I receive salvation today. I receive redemption today. Thank you for justifying me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he rose again on the third day. I believe he's the only way to heaven. Today, 
I make Jesus my Lord. I turn away from my old life. I repent of all that. And I receive full forgiveness of all my sins. Thank you for making me completely right with you today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.